0: Welcome to Morals and Markets. If you are joining us via the podcast, be sure to like and subscribe. And as always, for Thursday of every month, you can join us live. Go to theoutlandsociety.org backslash events, and you will be able to find the links to join next month's session. We are on Zoom now. We've switched back to Zoom, so it will be a recurring Zoom link. This, If you've registered once, this is the link that you can use every fourth Thursday to join us. So with that being said, we are doing why MBAs are not pro-capitalist. And I'm going to hand it off to you, Richard. Thank you very much, Abby. And as usual, uh, welcome to Morals and Markets. This is done every month for about 90 minutes. I speak for about 20 or 30 minutes. On some issue relating to the connection between morals, or ethics, and uh, markets or economics, so you can think of it as a, a synthesis of uh, philosophy and uh, economics. Now, um, I the topic tonight I've discussed before. There's a clubhouse session if you want to look at it. I want to expand on this a little bit uh, tonight, though. Let me just read my descriptor that I sent out. It's widely but falsely assumed that financial economic capitalists are necessarily pro-capitalist ideologically. Why is that so? By now, woke CEOs are widely recognized and indeed widely hailed for being anti-capitalist, including by uh, violating their fiduciary duties to shareholders. So we can talk more about this, uh, what that means. The graduate degree of masters in business administration, that's what MBA stands for, is on the resume of one third of all Fortune 500 CEOs. I actually thought it might be higher than that, but it's one third. I think it's a main cause of the woke CEO phenomenon and trend. And I've had a session before on stakeholder capitalism and woke CEOs and things. So you can think of this session as fleshing out uh, those themes. In prior deceptions, as I said, I've talked about stakeholder, and I'll mention this again tonight and weave it in, but I'll also talk about ESG, what does that mean, why is that uh, causing major disruptions uh, for the worse, I think. Um, anyway, so the, the focus, uh, however, is on MBAs um, and uh, how programs in MBA schools, especially the more elite schools, are preaching this kind of stuff, and uh, it's a fairly new phenomenon in that regard. So um, this is all of a piece of me wanting to defend capitalism. I'm doing this in the book I just published, Where Have All the Capitalists Gone? There, is some, uh, there are some chapters in there on this topic, but as to MBAs, now it, uh, if you go way back to Karl Marx in uh, his writings in the Communist Manifesto in 1848 and elsewhere, and this is still true today among Marxists, there is a very common view that your economic status determines your ideas, not the other way around. So now what do I mean by that? Marx, the Marxists have this view that everything, history, politics, uh, your thinking, your biases are determined by where you stand in relation to the means of production. So everything for them was the means of production, meaning factories, tools, equipment, and things like that. And their view is if you owned those things, You were a capitalist, Uh, that's actually definitionally true, but the further implication, you were an exploiter. You were someone who had power over those who did not have capital. And therefore this uh, exploitation theory, the idea that the worker is stuck, the worker has nowhere to go but the factory, the worker is in effect conscripted by having no choice and uh, it's an exploitative relationship Profits aren't earned. Profits are stolen. Profits are either a result of underpaying people what they're truly worth. That would save on costs or overcharging customers. That's the more recent view. But the combination of the two, of course, would be you get higher prices and lower expenses than you otherwise would. Now the thinking here was if you own the means of production, you were pro anything that was for the means of production. So you, and on the other hand, if you were a laborer, you were necessarily anti-business, you were necessarily anti-corporate, anti-profit, all that kind of thing. And so um, it's a very material, if you know the philosophy, it's a very materialist view in philosophy. By material, I don't mean consumer goods and things like that. Materialist in philosophy means that things are moved not by consciousness, not by ideas, but rather by physical, literally physical materialist things. Now this theory is not true. Uh, You only need to look today at people like uh, George Soros or Bill Gates or the whole range of anti-George Soros is one. What's the other one? Bloomberg who ran for uh, president recently. There's a whole range of very wealthy people who are anti-capitalist. And this is a head-scratcher to some people as to why that would be. It's only a head-scratcher because they have this Marxist theory. And equally, by the way, it's a head scratcher why, you know, the the typical truck driver say, or the, I remember the Teamsters Union backed Reagan in 1980, and it was a head scratcher to people. How can union, uh, more physicalist workers, uh, waitresses and things like, that, why would they be more Republican, middle of the country type of thing? Again, it flies in the face of the Marxist view. And the answer is the our ideas come from ultimately from philosophy in the in the universities, uh, trickling on through to the intellectuals journalism, uh, stand all the way to stand-up comics, and then it's not your material position. So there's no mystery here. I remember also in my early career, uh, which started on Wall Street in 1981, so I was on Wall Street working in finance for about 20 years, and I noticed right away, uh, even in the 1980s, which, if you know and remember, was a revival of neoliberalism, meaning the new liberty, the case for capitalism coming out of Reaganomics, coming out of Thatcher, those whole, the whole two decade period before 2000, it was a movement toward a a friendlier feeling uh, and practice toward capitalism. And Wall Street was vibrant again, America was vibrant again. And so you would think that people on Wall Street would be pro-capitalist. Most of the ones I met were not. Now, most of them were Democrats, which didn't mean they were socialists, but uh, it was almost like the wealthier they were, the more suspicious they were of capitalism. And, and I would ask them, because I was a pro-capitalist all the way from the beginning, and I would ask them, why are you not aware of the beauty of this system? And some of them would say with amount of guilt, uh, especially in finance, they didn't quite know why they were making so much money. Uh, they couldn't really explain the productive nature of finance. And so they felt guilty, but I could sense that part of the guilt was instilled in them by intellectuals. It was instilled in them by professors and and preachers and all the others. Uh, Now, I myself went to business school in the late 80s. Uh, I got my degree at what's now known as the Stern School of Business. At the time, it was New York University Business School. I went at night while I was working at a bank. And uh, I think I got the degree in 1988. So I got an MBA, I do remember the program. Now, 1988, when you think about it, this is after uh, eight years of Reagan and we're about three years away from the dissolving of the Soviet Union. So the whole trend was toward free markets are great, entrepreneurialism is back, there are business heroes, they're not villains anymore. And and that was the broader trend um, and it seemed pro-capitalist, but it obviously didn't have any lasting influence, because for the last 20 years, we've been moving in a different direction. But, at, but I bring up my MBA experience and uh, the reading around at the time, and I noticed only a small sliver of the curriculum uh, dealing with what we would today call woke or social justice stuff. Uh, you, you majored in, this is still true today, you majored in either finance, or marketing, or accounting, or strategy, and things like that. And so you had specialties, but they would just give you maybe one or two courses required on, I I think the call then was, it was described as the the legal and social context of business, the legal and social context of business. So they were training future managers of the idea that, well, you need this specialty, you need these skills, but you also have to be aware, and I agreed with this as well, I mean, we didn't live in a laissez-faire economy. You needed to be aware of the legal surroundings. You know, if you were in finance, you needed to know how the Federal Reserve worked or the SEC uh, or the regulatory agencies. You didn't want to go awry, you know, from the regulatory standpoint. And then the social, now the social aspect, that's interesting. And they taught it as things like be aware of the reputation of business, be aware of the broader social uh, attitudes toward money making and business and big business and Wall Street and things like that. And I thought that was a perfectly valid part of the curriculum. And uh, on the other hand, the dominant model was what's called the shareholder model of capitalism and business. Now, that meant the shareholders, of course, are the owners of the corporation that by shareholders is meant those who invest in the corporation. And now I have to shut up my dog. One second. My point was that the model was shareholder model, meaning the owners of the company would be the ones who would decide. Management, strategy, all sorts of things like that. And what was developing in the law schools and the business schools, however, at the same time, in the late 70s, was a stakeholder model. So notice they use the phrase stakeholder. It's very interesting. Sounds like shareholder. But the idea is they wanted a broader conception of who should control the corporation. Now the Marxist theory was, was when the laborers got upset and were no longer willing to be exploited, they would basically take over militantly. There would be a revolution. There'd be a violent revolution. There'd be a seizure of the means of production, and that's how we would go to socialism. Now that didn't actually happen. If you look at the Russian Revolution, if you look at the China Revolution, Cuba, none of them occurred in an industrial setting, and none of them occurred by means of seizing business assets. They were attacks on, say, the Czar in Russia, 1917. China and Cuba, certain agricultural, agricultural countries. So I interpret what's going on now as somewhat democratic socialism, but it really is a form of fascism. It's the idea of, well, we're not going to be able to nationalize business. We're not gonna be able to get government to actually take over the means of production, but we're gonna have them control the means of production. right? So capitalism in other sessions, it's not just private ownership of property. With that private ownership comes control, what you do with the property. I mean, think of your own body. If I said you have a right to control your own body, but I treated you like a slave and I told you what to do with your body, you would say, well, I'm not fully free. And if I said, well, you own your body, I'm just telling you what to do with it, or your personal property, or your car, or your house, or your possessions. So the control part's really important. Now, the socialists want public control and public ownership. Capitalism is private both. But the hybrid systems like fascism are basically, you can keep title to your property, but we'll tell you what to do with it. I believe that's exactly what's going on, not just in America, by the way, but in Europe and elsewhere. This stakeholder model is deliberately designed, and if you look at the founders of it, they actually say this, and not quite as starkly as I do. The point is to dilute, I'll use a phrase from Wall Street, to dilute the power and ownership of existing owners of existing shareholders by bringing in other stakeholders. Now who are these other so so this is one of the tributaries if you will to the whole woke corporate mentality. I'm talking about the stakeholder model. Uh, I'll soon I'll turn to business ethics and ESG. But this is one tributary, the theory that of of corporate governance if you will. The theory of corporate control. And this is increasingly, as I said before, started in business schools, but it's creeped into, it started in law schools, but it's creeped into business schools in the last couple of decades. So if you went to business school today, and the the top ones, of course, are Harvard, Stanford, uh, what else I would say? Well, Wharton in Pennsylvania, Chicago, the Booth School of Chicago, It's really, I mean, there are many business, Kellogg at Northwestern. there are uh, many business schools, but it's the cream of the crop, so to speak, the ones that have the most prestige that are most teaching this stuff. And if you look at the profiles of those one-third of Fortune 500 companies I talked about, I would say a third of them went to Harvard Business School. And this is totally being taught at Harvard Business School. I've researched this in the last, the trend there in the last two decades has increasingly been toward that in the last decade especially so. Rebecca Henderson, if you want to look it up. Rebecca Henderson at the Harvard Business School is the the professor's got some colleagues who's most pushing this. And her most recent book is called Now Get This, what do you think this is about? Reimagining Capitalism. So reimagining in this literature always means overthrowing capitalism, but reimagining sounds so much better. It sounds like a reform movement, but it's really much more radical than that. Now I want to say something about stakeholders. Who are these stakeholders? Let me let me just quote from the business roundtable and, and why this is important. In 2019, the business roundtable. What is that? It is a uh, lobbying group for the biggest corporations in America. It's called the Business Roundtable. It was founded in 1978. Its goal was to get some common agreement among large corporation CEOs on public policy, specifically related to governance. And already in the 70s, there had been a controversy about this. That was the beginnings of people saying, you should manage your corporations with corporate social responsibility not just for shareholders. And really the only two people in academia that were arguing against this was Milton Friedman, who in 1970 had written for the New York Times, the social responsibility of business is to increase profits. So he was defending the profit-oriented shareholder model. And an objectivist business historian named Robert Hessen Who was at the Hoover Institution and in 1979, at the end of that decade, wrote a great book called In Defense of the Corporation. And interestingly, Hessen was defending the corporation not only against the left, critiques from Ralph Nader and others, but from libertarians, Rothbard and others, who were claiming that corporations were favors. Corporations were not natural, according to these anarchist libertarians. Corporations were Something that the state created and therefore the state could control. So by the end of the 70s, there was a narrowing group of people willing to defend the corporate model, which had been in place in America for more than 100 years and had contributed really to America's enormous prosperity. Well, back to the business roundtable. From 1978 until about 1997, every time it issued an annual report or pretty much any white paper it issued, in various forms, it endorsed the shareholder view of the corporation, that the, manager, the corp, managers of the corporation. and remember, the bigger the corporation gets, the CEO's office, the managers are not going to be able to own large shares in the companies because the companies are now huge. So this is not a case of, you know, like Henry Ford in 1905 who owns Ford Motor Company when it was smaller, right? But by today, right, no one could have a huge share in Ford Motor Company because it's so huge. So over time, what happens is to grow your company, you bring in other investors, you bring in other shareholders, and now there's hundreds, possibly even thousands of them, but they're still the owners. And the managers are basically hired by the owners to conduct the business and to earn profits and to not waste money and and to not go off on boondoggles and to pay dividends and other things to the owners. So the owners are actually the shareholders. Well, it was in 2019 that the business Roundtable came out and said, we are changing our view of what the purpose of the corporation should be. It should now be stakeholder. Now they were just basically, as I said, they were basically finally putting a rubber stamp, but these were CEOs doing it now. A rubber stamp on the basic social movement that had been going on for a a decade or two. JP Morgan's chairman, Jamie Dimon, also on the board, he said, major employers are investing in their workers now and their communities. That should be our focus. We now have modernized principles reflecting the business community's unwavering commitment to push for an economy that serves all Americans, unquote. You get the idea? Serving all Americans versus serving shareholders. The idea of serving JP Morgan shareholders, that's considered selfish. That's considered narrow. That's considered short-termism. <clears throat> quote from uh, Johnson & Johnson CEO. This statement affirms the essential role corporations play in improving our society when CEOs are truly committed to meeting the needs of all stakeholders, unquote. So you get this concept that it's being blown out into a societal, this is a very, very utilitarian argument. We're serving society, not ourselves, not our owners. We're serving broader stakeholders, and the list can get very long. The statement itself says, this is now an order of the stakeholders, delivering value to our customers, blah, 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 investing in our employees, and there's a whole section, we foster diversity and inclusion, dignity, and respect. Third, dealing fairly and ethically with suppliers. Fourth, supporting communities in which we work. And fifth on the list, shareholders. So you see the inverted priorities. It's now we got four different types of stakeholders that must be served prior to shareholders. Now, let me just say uh, right off the top, I've never found a business in the old model that ignored its customers, its employees, (laughs) its suppliers, and I would say even its local community to the extent they want to draw employees from it. So the idea that these groups are somehow inimical to maximizing profit or inimical to the shareholder model is ridiculous. But it's one way of pitching this, because on the surface, it seems like, well, who could be against a corporation uh, caring about its customers? Uh, The point is, there are many, many more stakeholders than this, and many that are anti-corporate. Exxon, for example, literally uh, in the last year, put on two board members who are against fossil fuels. Now, you go try to make sense of that. This is appeasing one's enemies. This is not trying to uh, diversify or get into other businesses. These corporations are facing enormous pressure and criticism from anti-corporate, anti-capitalist influences and interests. A business school professor a couple of years ago did a survey of the stakeholder literature, and she was trying to get a definition because it can be very vague. And so she went searching, searching for any article, any journal article she could find in business uh, journals on stakeholders. And she just started drawing up a list of who this, it's not just a list of five. At one point she counted 435 different people, groups, causes, including the earth and the intergalactic space, who were stakeholders. So you see that this becomes a very arbitrary system but the idea that the underlying goal is to, I would say bleed dry uh, the corporate business community. So that's a, I'll leave that aside for now. We can talk more about what the stakeholder model is. But the other tributary to this whole process in business goals is the business ethics module. Now, when I say ethics, um, there are many ethical codes. I alluded to one of them, utilitarianism. Which says you don't really have any rights that the goal of an ethic should be to maximize the greatest happiness for the greatest number. That's the alleged standard from Bentham Mill and onward. It's a very common standard today. It's the one we get when we say whatever is good for society, whatever is good for the common good, whatever is good for the general welfare of the public interest, these kind of broad based collectivist criteria under which you're able in this model to sacrifice certain individuals or groups or companies if it helps the greater good so it's not an individualist rights-based ethic now another ethic would be the kantian school Immanuel kant who has a deontological ethic which says your primary goal in life should be to serve others not yourself anything that's in your self-interest is dubious morally There's the altruist school from Auguste Comte, not not K-A-N-T, but C-O-M-T-E, Auguste Comte in 1850s came up with altruism. He made up the word altruism means otherism, and it was a similar view uh, to Kant's, but even worse. The idea was any egoistic self-interested behavior was immediately off limits in terms of morality. Altruism or other oriented, it had to be service to others, especially if they weren't of any value to you. So perfect strangers would be more important that you served rather than say family or friends. So altruism is the competing uh, ethic that goes against what's called rational egoism. And that's the philosophy, the ethical system advocated and explained by Ayn Rand. Rational egoism is the idea that you should be the primary beneficiary of your own choices and values, the primary beneficiary, not the only one, that you should serve yourself first, that you should be self-interested, selfish, if you will, that's the derogatory term for it, greedy, if you will, but greedy for what? Greedy for health and wealth and life and happiness. In, In the American system, the pursuit of happiness, what Ayn Rand called the central moral purpose of one's life, to be happy. It's a very egoistic motive when you think about it. You're not looking to abdicate. You're not looking to suffer. You're not looking to be a victim. You're looking to enjoy life and create values without harming others. So the rational part is, well, it's not automatic what our self-interest will be. We have to figure out what it is. We have to do the hard work of figuring out what our values are and how to attain them. Now, it should be obvious in the context of MBAs, business, Wall Street, that the commercial manifestation of this ethic is the profit motive. One of the reasons profit is hated or distrusted is not simply this residue leftover of the Marxist view that it's theft. That's part of it. That's an error, but, but it's also this kind of biblical injunction against anything selfish or anything money-making love of money is the root of all. evil. Uh, Shall be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's many, many biblical and other passages deriding anything commercial. There's a long history of this, intellectuals versus commercial. The commercial world seen as low, vulgar, crude, base, whereas the intellectual and moral things are higher and heavenly and mental. So that's feeding this as well, an underlying distrust of profit. And if the shareholder model, which it is, is saying, listen, uh, it should be, the goal should be to to maximize profit. To this ethic, that sounds like maximizing uh, vice. We don't want to be maximizing vice. We want to be minimizing vice. And we might make profit, but then the way to exonerate ourselves is to give it away in some kind of philanthropy. Or just think of what the image is of the nonprofit organization. It's It's considered noble it's considered moral as opposed to the for-profit uh, entity. So that is another tributary. Business schools are not immune to the ethical codes of coming out of arts and sciences. Uh, same thing with the law schools, same thing with the medical schools, by the way, the same thing, believe it or not with the engineering schools, they're all on the same campus. The key influencer is the philosophy departments. I know people think philosophy has no influence, but ethics is part of philosophy. And to the extent philosophy is teaching this altruistic service to society code, it's permeating other specialty uh, schools, like business, medical, law, and engineering. And so that is one of the reasons you're getting MBAs uh, to paradoxically um, becoming either anti-capitalist or at least not pro-capitalist. Now, I just want to, before I turn to ESG, uh, just give you the headlines of certain things that have shown up in the last few years to give you just a sense. I'm not going to summarize all these arguments, but here's one from a business ethics journal. Quote, this is from 2012. Business schools, capitalism's last stand. Now, the theme of that one is, well, capitalism is hated in other departments, but you'd think it would still be liked in uh, the business schools. That's its last stand. And according to the author, it was losing ground even there. Uh, Here's an essay from Harvard Business School magazine, December 2016. MBAs are more self-serving than other CEOs. So this one goes on. It's a study of uh, whether getting an MBA makes you more self-interested. The bottom line of it was: this is problematic. If you're more self-interested, you're more likely to rob, cheat, steal, pull an Enron, pull a Bernie Madoff. You get the idea. February 2018. This is from a podcast called "Capitalism." It's not capitalism, but capitalism. And by a bunch of egalitarian professors, the moral case against the MBA. The moral case, well, what would it be? The MBA is too selfish. The MBA is too bottom line oriented. Here from the Harvard Crimson, I'm getting up in the dates here 2019, Harvard Crimson interviewing the dean of the Harvard Business School. Quote, lack of trust in the capitalist system is Harvard Business School's biggest challenge, Dean Naraya says. Glenn Hubbard, who was a Council of Economic Advisors, I think in the Bush administration, now teaching at Columbia, I think he's actually head of the Columbia Business School. This is from the Atlantic in uh, January of this year. Quote, even my business school students have doubts about capitalism. And and he he doesn't really have an answer. Hubbard is not a very philosophic guy, uh, but he's writing in kind of a shock that over the years he has seen students showing up and they're not just simply not interested in capitalism but becoming anti-capitalist. And then finally, the Washington Post, quote, "America." this is from uh, June last month, America's MBAs are the latest skeptics of capitalism. The latest, right? So maybe the last in line, but they came from somewhere, right? And and I'm saying it came from the philosophy departments, came from the ethics department. By the way, before I leave business ethics, there's a running joke among business ethics professors that when they get the students in, the students always say, hey, isn't there a contradiction in the term business ethics? Uh Ha ha ha, everybody laughs. And the idea is they assume that business is not moral. They assume that it can't be ethical. And so why are we even teaching business ethics? Is this course just here to restrain ourselves to find all the ways to counter self-interest, to counter the profit motive, to counter. uh, Uh Lastly, I'll leave this tributary ESG. This is a more recent phenomenon. So we've had business ethics. We have the stakeholder model chipping away at corporations and the latest, it's not all that new. It's about 20 years old. It began by a group at the UN believe it or not, or well, maybe you can believe it, ESG standing for environmental, social, and governance standards. What is the goal, if you look at the founders of this, what is the goal? To set up criteria, initially, it was to go to money managers. Uh, initially, it was to go to shareholder uh, groups like uh, that, that own shares like Vanguard or Fidelity or State Street Global or today, BlackRock, headed by Larry Fink. So, so these are money managers, investment managers holding shares and taking proxy votes. And the idea was, well, shareholders are not really paying attention to corporate governance. Let's go to these huge money managers and convince them that they should impose on managers social justice type woke stuff that was in many ways anti-corporate and anti-profit. So if you see the acronym ESG, that's what it is. It's it's enormously it's like a cancer I believe uh, into not just corporate life there are now ESG scores not only for companies and of course they would be downgraded on things like are you using fossil fuels uh, do you have uh, you know employment in uh, foreign countries we don't like so there's a whole range of or do you have you know do you, we need a certain gender or social or racial makeup in the boardroom. So deliberately non-objective, in many cases racist, environmentalist uh, standards being imposed on businesses. And they're just cowering before this because they feel guilty uh, to begin with. Um, But there are also ESG scores for nations. So the UN is running around and everyone's running around measuring nations and some of the turmoil recently in the Netherlands uh, and Sri Lanka where they've overturned the government those governments trying to follow ESG standards have thrown away things like fertilizer use and agriculture to the point where a third of the farmers are unemployed, to the point where there are food shortages and riots going on. I mean, this is a, if you look it up, just put ESG in, ESG and Sri Lanka, there is a direct connection between these very inhumane anti-capitalist standards and the collapse of economies. So I believe it's not only bleeding dry otherwise uh, prosperous corporations that gave us the standard of living we have. It's going to corporate. It's going to dry uh, some of these entire economies. So I'll, I'll leave it there. My main theme is that the MBA programs you would think would produce business people and CEOs who uh, who are serving the actual owners which is the thing they should be doing. They should not be running off like a trust fund, running off with the assets and using it for their own purpose or the broader social purpose. The business schools, like the law schools and medical schools, are not immune from what's being taught in the core of the university, especially in the ethics departments and the philosophy departments. And the ideas are very bad. The only way to fight this long term is to advocate an ethic of rational egoism. And with that, the idea of property rights and individualism, and when it comes to the corporate world, an unabashed kind of guiltless love of profit and profit motive and profit maximization and rejecting the idea that these are in any way a version of theft or an injustice. And that is the only way we're going to recapture the kind of rights a corporation should have and the kind of prosperity we can get under capitalism. So I'll, uh, I'll leave it there and now take comments and questions. All right. If you are listening on the podcast, this is the end of your time with us, but you should definitely join us live next uh, month on the fourth Thursday of every month, 5.00 PM Pacific time, 8.00 PM Eastern time, so that you can take part in what is usually another hour of question and answer and discussion.